years ago, I picked up Thomas Merton's book, The Wisdom of the Desert, which was really just his personal compilation of sayings, little paragraph sayings of the Desert Fathers, the many Desert Fathers in the third and fourth century of Christianity. And I want to read something from the introduction because I love it. It says, in the fourth century AD, the deserts of Egypt, Palestine, Arabia, and Persia were peopled by a race of men who had left behind them a strange reputation. They were the first Christian hermits who abandoned the cities of the pagan world to live in solitude. Why? Why did they do this? The reasons were many and various, but they can all be summed up in one word, as the quest for salvation. Society, which meant pagan society limited by the horizons and prospects of life in this world, was regarded by them as a shipwreck from which every person needed to swim for their life. Now, these were men who believed that to let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society, was purely and simply a disaster. Welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. John Eldridge in the studio this week with my son, Sam. Morgan Snyder. Uh, we are trying to bring in for a landing here a series on the world. And this is the second half of the conclusion because we just didn't want to rush some counsel, some hope, some direction, some stories of what does it look like to not let oneself drift along passively, to swim for your life from the shipwreck of the world. How, how do you do that well without, Morgan, you were talking about like the extremes of that, like one extreme is like, yes, we're all going to go become hermits. Right. And, yeah. So enjoyed the series and been reflecting on it. It really feels like there's there's kind of three postures of soul with this uh, as by way of response, right? And And one is to just embrace the world, right? And, and you see this, even in Christian culture, I'm just observing as we're wrestling with the world and looking at the world in which we find ourselves, much of Christian culture is a Christian-labeled version of the world. Oh, gosh. Right? Don't, don't get me going. fully immersed. Oh, my gosh. You're it, punching all my buttons. And I'll say in humility, I, I find it in my life. And so this isn't throwing stones. This is naming the world is much with us. The and, world has invaded Christian ways of doing things, church— publishing, even relief work. Right. I mean, I, you know, it's just, it has. It's the air we breathe. Right, and putting the name Jesus on it does not in and of itself sanctify it. Or make it of the kingdom of God. Right. We, we, use, the, we use the techniques of the world. I remember Francis Schaeffer years ago saying that he would kind of sort of wake up, he'd sort of find himself sitting in a board meeting, and he couldn't remember if it was for a Christian ministry or a secular business, wow. and there was no difference in the board meeting in the way that they were making decisions. Mm. Okay, so that's just, yeah, right. okay, so, so one option So one is, option is the world is in us, right? And Just go with it. The the other kind of posture of soul is, is bail, run, flee, right? We, we walked out of one of these recordings and we were just chatting about 
most of us, we just want to get a cabin in the woods and work the land and eject, you know? And I feel that pull in me. I mean, it's gracious that my kids are in a school system that you cannot pull them out for an entire year because I'd be gone. Right. And it's there is a constraint, a holy constraint. Yeah. But the third one is the— And, and, let's remember— okay. That Jesus said in John 17, Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but rather I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Exactly. So, so even Jesus said, look, I, I need to leave you in this mess as salt and light. Yes. Okay, you can't all eject to the desert. Right. Right, or, or the, the ski slopes or whatever your version of that would be. Right. So that— and so we're after what is this third way, yeah. right, for the soul, where it's yeah. in the world and not of the world. And, and we hear that phrase very often, but this podcast series is intended to really pause and get curious of in love, to receive love, and to be united with God. What does it look like to take his invitation seriously, where he says, I, I don't want to remove them from the world, but I will protect them mm -hmm. as they are in the world, mm -hmm. but rooted in my kingdom. I love that this is super clear and easy, right? Because we were able to just concretely <laughs> lay this out in a simple one episode. Easy. It's gluten. Gluten is the enemy. That's it. Yeah. Like, wait a second. No, this is taking a two part, and none of the other episodes took that. Like, how to walk well in it. Yeah. yeah it's some, very telling, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's good, Sam. Gang, I think I actually can make this simple. If I could give you one thing. Is it gluten? It's not gluten. <laughs> I'm listening. Love God. Really, the more that you intentionally love God, the more that all the stuff we're talking about is going to become real clear to you. And each person is at a different stage in life, and each person is in a different socioeconomic situation, and a different family or non-family situation, different culture, different place in the world. We have listeners all over the world, and God will make it clear within your context. But the, the whole thing is that the world is the momentum of fallen humanity trying to make life work without God. Okay, so, you know, you don't have to live well. We can rescue you through, you know, medication or, you, you know, all that stuff we've been talking about. But if you love God, if you just really love God, it'll do a lot to detox you from the world, and it'll do a lot to begin to just kind of show you, because all of this is just personal revelation for us. If we we just came to certain places where we're like, I can't do that anymore. I can't cooperate with that anymore. I can't give my kids that kind of screen time anymore. I, you know, I don't want just a convenient life. It's making me flabby. It was just personal experience mm -hmm. of loving God mm -hmm. that took us into some of this. Okay, so welcome back. And what we've been doing is walking through the episodes, and I've just been naming some things that we described as the reality of the world, and then saying, okay, what do you do about that? So what I want to do here is start with episode three, which was characterized by the assault on our attention, how everything in our life is constantly trying to grab our attention. And gang, it happened to me again this morning. I was looking up some scriptures for this, and, and I love the help of those online Bible programs, Bible Hub, Bible Gateway, Bible Tools. Like, there's great stuff out there. But of course, in order to run those, they let Google Ads play the ads, and Google Ads knows your buying pattern. And boom, you know, here's, here's ads that are particularly tailored to me. 
There's the one thing that could distract oh, you. Oh, man, there it is. There's <laughs> Kuyu's ultralight hunting equipment. There's Orvis's latest fly fishing gear. They know me. Yes. They know my buying patterns. Yes. They know my vulnerabilities. It's so freaking evil. They know my computer. And so there I am trying to look up Bible verses and hear these ads playing at me, coming at me. So the assault on our attention, things like clickbait, and push notifications and Google ads designed for your particular appetites. And the dilemma that we were trying to describe is this. We have actually become, as human beings, very easily distracted. Our attention span has has been fragmented by the world, by this assault, and it's really a marketing assault ultimately, on our attention. And, and the, the reason that why this is actually so critical is that your ability to give your attention to God mm-hmm. is the one thing that allows you your rescue. Like, it's how you receive his love. It's how you receive his guidance. It's how you receive transformation. You know, the Psalms said they looked to him and they were radiant, right? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith. There, there is a need to be able to give our attention to things of our own choosing, for heaven's sakes, right? And particularly God. So we've just held that out there as, hey, th- this, is a, this is a deal. Like, this is a problem to live in a world where your attention is constantly being assaulted. You know, advertisements playing in taxi cabs and on buses and— Getting your gas filled, yeah. Right, and and trying to look up a verse online, just anywhere and everywhere. In Crawford's book, The World Beyond Your Head, one of the examples he uses is the advertising community kind of does their own Academy Awards, and they give, you know, awards to— advertising agencies and campaigns that they think are like, wow, that was amazing, particularly innovative, particularly cool. And here was the one that had won. It was uh, Dunkin' Donuts, and it was in Korea. It was in Seoul. And on the bus, while the ad for Dunkin' Donuts is playing over the audio in the bus, they actually sprayed the aroma of coffee into the air, into the environment of the bus. And they were triggering the body's desire for coffee as they were advertising coffee. And the next bus stop pulls up, and they knew that's where the Dunkin' Donuts store is. And so mm. there it is, right? Mm. And they just, they, you know, that won an award because they thought, oh, how innovative. And what Crawford is saying is, oh, how intrusive. How dare you do that to me? Like, my space is not yours to invade at any time by any means to arrest my attention. So that's the world. And what are we doing? Mm. What are we doing to counter that? To to develop to be people who can actually choose where they give their attention? Like what are we doing there? What sh- what can we do? John, you what I appreciate is you're describing a predatorial nature, right? The, the, we is. have to remember the world is not neutral ground. It's not. Right? It's predatorial and and you're describing an active campaign where the world actually erodes our capacity to give attention. And I think what strikes me about this category when we talked about we talk about practicalities, you know, Tozier says that God waits to be wanted. Mm-hmm. He, he is simply not 
interested in competing. Don't make him yell, gang. Right. He doesn't he doesn't like to have to yell. Right. But it's beautiful because what it we requires is our engagement. And I think for me, really practical things of therefore creating room for him. In other words, because I know my attention has eroded, I actually have to choose activities that re restrengthen. So decisions, and this is really practical, of doing as many things as possible slower, talking slower. I found myself over the last decade walking slower. A lot of my buddies, this bugs them about me. I drive slower because it is one of the areas in my life that I still have say. Yes. And I don't need to be in a hurry, though I can feel the reaction oh, yes. is blast because here's yep. a chance to make up some time. Yep. And so what I find, John, for me is so much of hearing from God and cultivating his acquaintance is a reflection of what kind of person I've become that I have a capacity exactly. to listen, Bingo. right? Ding, 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 ding. Mm -hmm. What else am I doing in my life that cultivates my ability to be that person, right? It's not just, oh, okay, so I'll have a quiet time. That's not what we're saying. It's not, okay, so I'll memorize the scripture, you know, a week or whatever. No, 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 gang. It's like the world has turned you into a certain kind of person. Right. That person is very distracted. That person needs constant stimulation. In, in the episode that we're going to react to in a moment on the real versus the artificial, episode four, Blaine was explaining that the average segment in a Super Bowl game, that the televised segment is three seconds long. They shift, the, shift the focus, shift the focus, new camera, new this, shift the angle, did it. You know, like that, you are assaulted and it is doing things to your soul. It is eroding your substance. So what can we do? Well, you can drive slower, right? Instead of, instead of running, you can choose to walk. Yeah, I mean, for me, the cultivation piece feels huge. It feels like the answer. Are we cultivating an ability to feel certain things, to feel contentment, to feel full, to feel present? They, I have had so many conversations where enough or happiness or hope or contentment, they, they feel like these emotions that stars have to align in order for us to feel this way. There, there's something like something went really right and you experience contentment rather than that's actually something that you are practicing. Blaine, I'm sure he, maybe he didn't mention this, but it's something we've talked about, the way that advertising literally will play off the seven deadly sins, that they will craft an article and it will go something like this. Everyone laughed when he sat down at the piano but then he began to play. And you have this, you have envy at the end, you have hatred at the beginning, you have this whole thing that pulls you in. Mm. They know, like they, they know they're to include these things. And so for us to cultivate contentment and joy and presence, I mean, it's our goal. We have social media for our sons in our outreach and being present there. It's our goal that someone in our audience would eventually deactivate all of that that we have. I mean, we have somebody else handling it. So practically, we do not engage things that we know are uphill battles. Like if you are on a fast from sugar, don't go to the donut shop. Why would you do that? That's right. just not very kind. Right. Chesterton has this quote that I like that really applies to this, but it's this, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Mm. And so it's not... It, 
it's to this very specific thing of your attention and what you can give your heart over to. You can be in that little hamster wheel going, going, going. Totally. Totally. Or you can actually be like, I'm going to be happy today without interacting with my phone. And that's going to be something that's going to be really hard. Yes. But break that thing. Yes. Yeah. Dear friend is, is in a rehab program right now. I'm sorry to say. And one of the things that that they made them surrender is their phone. Mm. Because the issue is distraction and compulsion. You need to begin to make choices to be less distracted and less compulsory, you know? And so, yeah, what are you doing to cut out the noise, Mm -hmm. right? The choice is don't check your phone in the morning, the first thing when you wake up. Like, don't enter back into the world, the news, your feed, the text that you got overnight. No. Like, no, I choose to protect my attention first thing in the Mm -hmm. morning, right? Cutting out the noise. Where is the stillness in your life? Just just begin with one minute, just one minute of stillness. You'll be surprised how wonderful it is. And you can build from there, and you can go on to to experience just one minute of stillness in your life. And then I do think we need, Morgan, you were talking about doing things deliberately to get back the power of attention, right? To, uh, To cultivate my ability to give attention to things. And so reading for me and not online. Right, a physical book an actual book feel the paper yeah and requires quiet and focus and attention and regardless of what it is i'm reading it might be history it might be nature but what's going on is i am retraining my brain and my soul to not need stimulation to give lingering focus to something really healthy stuff absolutely it feels like there's two categories. It feels like there's the the things that you can do, like reading, and then there's the things that you need to limit, right? So we've begun turning our phones all the time on do not disturb mode. So it doesn't vibrate. It doesn't make a noise. It doesn't jump into my world. I go wow. to it wow. when I'm ready to engage it. Wow. Now that can be kind of problematic when there's a crisis with the baby, but it's also a great excuse for dodging some of those situations. <laughs> so like there's, I would think about it in those two categories, how do you limit the noise? And then what are some things that you do to develop that capacity Yeah, for yeah. your attention? In a previous podcast, I just recommended take back your car time, right? Your commute time. If, if you're on public transportation, you can use headphones, right? You can, you can cut out the noise. And if you're in your own vehicle, like turn it all off, mm-hmm. right? And don't listen to the news or don't crank, you know, the country station or whatever. It is. Like you can take back space in your life that is quiet yes. and that allows you to develop the ability. I got some flack a few weeks ago. I, Morgan, it was in our a podcast on micro practices. Okay. We were talking about things we could do. So let me just pause and say, if you haven't listened to that, that would answer a lot of this question, okay. by the way, folks, micro practices. But I said that one of the things I do is Sudoku. And, and, you know, somebody sent in a, a playful, funny thing of, oh, really? That's how John spends time with God? You know? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I didn't explain it. What crossword puzzles or word games or things like Sudoku do is I am training my brain to be present and to focus on one thing mm. and, and, and to shut all other things out. 
Now, it's not in the Sudoku. God's not in the Sudoku. But what has become amazing to me is if all it takes for me now is about two minutes of that, and suddenly I set it down and I'm in a space where I can give my attention to God. Mm. Because I'm I'm cultivating that muscle, so to speak. I think as you're describing that, John, I think that the world screams at us, right? That's what we were talking about in that episode, that it's trying to constantly get our attention, yeah. but God doesn't. Right. And so we have learned, we have been trained to shut things out. Well, how is it that we hear from God when the posture of our soul is to protect mm. from noise. Mm -hmm. And so what I so appreciate what we're talking about is we have to find ways to cultivate an environment where we can hear his voice. And part of it's making space, and then the other is simply just practicing it. Well, what do you want? I want to hear from God. Yes. I want to hear his words. I yes. want to hear his counsel. I want to hear yes. his affirmation. And so I have to have a regular practice yes of asking him, you know, yesterday afternoon, had some tough things and just pulled away 10 minutes and said, God, what do you think? What do you think about me? What do you think about this situation? Mm. And then I waited mm. until I had a sense of what he wanted to say. Mm. And so simply practicing mm. a posture of listening. Yeah, it's just wonderful. It's wonderful. We have a friend who does needlepoint and I am embarrassed that my first reaction was, whoa, that's like super 1910 of you, you know? Like <laughs> <laughs> needlepoint, that's like way dated, you know? And now I get it. And I'm so sorry for my judgmental attitude because it's contemplative. She is occupying her attention with something over a protracted period of time. It is the very opposite of being online. Right, we're in a culture that we need sensory deprivation tanks. Yes, there right. you go. When you could just, well, I think I'd actually rather the sensory deprivation tank than the needle point, but yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it works. So just think about what are the things you're doing to shut out the noise on one hand, and what are the things you're doing to cultivate the ability to give your attention to things and to be present, to be present to it so that you can encounter God. In episode four, which was just a couple weeks ago, what we held up as the as a, another way to understand the world, one of the ways to understand the world is the real versus the artificial. And we held up emoticons and the Super Bowl as, you know, things that have become popular. And uh, the thing about emoticons is we, we have we have reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced human interaction down now to, cute little symbols, and, and that's it. And it, the real versus the artificial, we have actually come to prefer the artificial in our lives. And the reason for the Super Bowl example, if you weren't listening to that podcast, was it is the sensational and the fantastic and the urgent and the significant of something that's totally insignificant. It is making a large story out of a small story and trying to give people a sense of meaning, a sense of belonging, a sense of wow, through something that is utterly insignificant. And the commercials and the urgency and the, and the graphics on the screen and the soundtrack that plays, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, and all that, trying to give this epic sense, it's artificial. That, that's artificial epic. 
as opposed to real epic. Emoticons are artificial communication as opposed to actual communication. So as we think about the world has actually taught us now to prefer the artificial to the real, what do we do? What do we do? John, as I reflect on that episode, I think the phrase that helps me get very practical in this is cultivating an appetite for the real. That I actually have to cultivate that appetite because the world teaches me to want this sort of artificial mm. thing so much so mm. that I find myself preferring it. Exactly. I actually find myself preferring it. Right. I mean, I gave the example of it's easier to go buy cheap, good enough furniture yes. than to make my own. And I find choosing to make something, now not all my furniture, I'm not Amish, but to make something helps cultivate that practice for the real. Mm -hmm. And just like a super practical, if you know much about me, you know knives are an important part of my story with initiation and the bestowing and the symbolism of agency and competency and mastery in the masculine soul. So I love bestowing knives. I have lots of knives around me and I carry one every day. But what I found is I would bestow knives on people and a year later I'd realize they have a really dull edge because no one taught them how to sharpen that blade and yes. keep a sharp blade. And you hear the verse, iron sharpens iron. It becomes a Christian colloquialism, but we really don't know uh, we, we haven't cultivated an appetite for the real. And as an activity, I litter my world with knife sharpeners. I have a knife sharpener on my desk. I have a knife sharpener in my truck. I have a knife sharpener in my kitchen. And on a daily basis, I pull out my pocket knife and I run the blade over the stone. And it's a way you can't rush sharpening. It takes technique of which I am far from mastery. And yet it's it's beautiful, mm. it's sensual, it's real. And so one of many examples of how do I cultivate an appetite for the real such that mm. the artificial no longer satisfies my palate. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. It actually makes you a super good movie villain too when I was in your office and you were just sharpening your knife, <laughs> staring me in the eyes. <laughs> wasn't for special effects, it was for salvation. <laughs> it was very intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when I look at this, the real versus the artificial, I, I want to ask, is it working? Do you think it's working? Oh my gosh. Do you think that the rates of prescriptions for mental issues are connected? I mean, the, the rates of technology in the first world and the prescriptions for depression, yeah, for attention, like... Uh, any correlation there? Anything in you that goes, yeah, I'm satisfied with that. And as you think about, as I think about the artificial and the real, I go not just from my phone and my computer, but then into environments like the, the room that we're in, the, the workspace, the home. I think of social interactions. I think of the food we get. Like how real are, is the food that you're eating? Mm -hmm. I have a lot of conversations with friends who are wrestling with depression because it's, massive and it's rampant and i think it's highly connected to our environment and the yes. things we put into our bodies yes. and into our eyes and, and social media right and so the medication is a very helpful piece but it is a piece and often what in my own story what i needed and what i recommend is that it's accompanied by 
exercise and sunlight and you really take a look at your nutrition and what you're putting in your body. And these things actually have to be sustainable. Like any one of the pieces of advice we're giving, mm-hmm. if you just try all 100 at once, you'd you know, collapse under the weight of trying to change your life. Mm-hmm. But if you were to choose a few and slowly adopt them in your life, they actually become your norm. And so for me, sunlight, just to sit outside. Yesterday, I had my daughter for a few hours And we sat in the backyard, took our shoes off, and just had, like, the sunshine on our feet. And she was so happy to sit in my lap, sort of, but, like, on the grass, pushed up against me and looking around. And we just sat there for a little while. That was the most healing thing I've done in weeks. Yep. Exercise. I make it a daily, weekly, like, it is in my mind that I am looking forward to the time in my day when I am not looking at a screen and I am not under artificial lights, but I am outside and I am using my body. Yes. Like that is yeah. a high point. And these are the things that, back to the point about depression, like those will end up being your medication and will be, along with a life with God, far more than any pill can be. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be a little disruptive here, gang. So yes, exercise. Exercise is back. Exercise is in. Lots of studios, lots of gyms. You understand that when you're in that gym, folks, you're in an entirely artificial environment. You are on a machine and you are looking at a screen. You're in a climate-controlled environment. There's nothing about that environment that is actually real. And so I would encourage you to move your exercise outside. Which leads me to the point that we made in that episode is that 93% of our lives is spent indoors now. 93% of our lives, and that includes transportation time, whether that's public transportation or your car, you are in an artificial environment. It's fake weather. It's fake sounds. You know, it's artificial sounds, the engines and honking and computer beeps and phone rings and, you know, even the hum of the HVAC, right? All of that. Artificial lighting, artificial smells. You must get outside. I don't know how I can say this strongly enough. Nature has to become to the world something clearly optional. Oh, well, there, yeah, there's people who are kind of into that. Oh, my friend Nancy, she loves the beach. She just, she loves the beach. I, you know, not me. I don't really go there much. Or we, we've made it like a hobby. Some people choose that hobby, right? No, you need to understand literally your soul and your body were created for God's world, God's created world, for nature, creation. You you were not made to live within a climate-controlled, screen-driven noise. Gang, my dentist office is tiny. The waiting room, the lobby, I think there's eight chairs you can sit in in there. They have two television screens going at the same time. One of them is soft rock, and the other one is news. And both are playing constantly. And like, you understand, get out of that. Like, all of that erodes the soul. Nature is not an option. It isn't. And you need sunlight on your face. You need to experience rain. You need to smell the roses. You Literally, what I want to encourage you to do is to go out and smell and touch real things. I do this every day now. It's absolutely changed my life. Go out and deliberately smell and touch real things. I I have to get outside. I, I think it's really touching that C.S. Lewis 
Oxford professor, bookworm, you know, lectures, you know, not, he was not a triathlete, okay? He, he was not a Navy SEAL. He, he was a college professor, little overweight. Pipe but, smoker. Yeah, pipe smoker. But he felt the day was never right until he had taken a walk outside. We need to get out. And that's just a very simple thing you can do. Like, you can do that. Yeah, as we're talking about this, I'm struck by the there are environments that we are in and probably can't change a ton of and so have to choose away from them when we can. Yes. And then there's the cultural like just inundation that has begun to make us want it even when we have the opportunity not to. Bingo. So looking at the movies and the media that are like becoming more popular, Ready Player 1 just came out a couple weeks ago about a virtual reality that is far better and more exciting than the actual reality outside of this oasis, the Matrix, VR stuff. Like we, For me, it was Xbox for a really long time. There was a better reality in something else other than what was outside. And like that is probably feels true for a ton of people. And I had to kind of give myself a little bit of grace for that to go, People are also choosing better realities in romance novels, in your television show, and like whatever it is that the world is gearing you to choose yes. instead. And to choose away from that yeah. is really hard. But I mean, it's almost that we know this because it's almost the moral of every single one of those movies. The Matrix, Ready Player One, Ready Player One, the book ends when he like, Spoiler, things go well. If you, it's fine. It's a good thing. You should watch it and read it. But like at the end, the creator of this whole world tells the winner, you should also engage the real and think about maybe even he gives them the power to turn the whole thing off. Yeah. And like that's where the book mm. ends. Yes. Right. We know this. Or, or we were talking about Wally, the movie right. Wally. I adore that movie and it, it, the Pixar film of the little robot that's left to clean up the earth and, and humanity has evacuated the earth if you haven't seen it. Humanity's now living on these starships that are just kind of orbiting out there and you can golf, you know, everyone is obese on these things because there's no, there's nothing real. Yes. There's nothing real and even the end of Wally, right? The big moment is they have found a real plant mm. and they're going back to the earth to plant it and they're going to come back and it's the real yes. is the salvation of the story. So somehow we know this. Exactly. We it's it, right. It's written in our hearts. Ecclesiastes says, and I think what it takes me back to John is, as I'm listening to you, Sam, the questions come up. What are what are we moving away from, and what are we moving toward? I mean, Jesus's life had a quality of eternity. There was a way that he lived and moved that that was so compelling mm -hmm. to his close friends. And that's why, you know, we call it the Lord's Prayer and put this religious veneer on it. But the truth is his closest disciples looked at his life and they said, we want that. Yeah. How do we get that? And, yes. you know, in their words were, how to teach us how to pray. But they're saying, we want your life. Yes. And he begins by saying, Father, yeah. reveal who you are yeah. and set the world right. And so I, I want to cultivate an appetite for the real and even more immerse myself in the reality of God and his kingdom. And God is more beautiful. He's mm. more majestic. Mm. He's more 
imaginative and creative than all these other sociodramas. Mm-hmm. But until we get the real thing, the less wild will always seize our hearts. Yeah, exactly. It's back to ease. It's back to comfort. And it's numbing us. And, and it is it is numbing our ability to experience the kingdom of God. So what are you choosing away from? Mm-hmm. What are you detoxing from in terms of the artificial? What are you moving toward that is real? I and mean, cooking is something that is accessible to almost every single person, right? That you don't have to become a kite boarder and go out to the coast. You don't have to, you know, do the Appalachian Trail or something. There are things every day in your life that are very accessible to engage the real. And what I love about the cooking process is you are dealing with actual things, mm-hmm. heat and and how not to burn things, spices and how not to overdo it, but how to do it so it makes it taste wonderful. You, you are engaging the real and you are taking back part of your humanity. And, and what these practices do, it's funny again, because we're not actually naming a ton of spiritual practices, but what these things do is they detox you from the world and prepare you to be the kind of person that can live in God's kingdom. You know, on the spiritual realm, we mentioned fasting, choosing away from your Eden substitutes for once in a while, right? Set prayer goals for yourself that take more than a week. Like, pick something that you want to pray into that you know you're going to pray about for a little while, several weeks, maybe several months, right? Something that's out ahead, Because having that non-immediate thing is really good. It's not instant. It's not now. It's not, God, rescue me in this moment. It's, I'm praying into something way out there, cultivates your ability to participate in the kingdom of God. Scripture, okay? It's so unbelievably healing. And it's not the religious, and it's not the law, and it's not the duty. But if you will give your attention to Scripture on a regular basis, reading the Psalms, reading Proverbs, reading passages, that it, it actually does affect your being. Mm-hmm. It does. It brings substantiveness into your life. John, it reminds me of a quote from St. Francis that I often find myself turning back to, where he says, to wear the world like a loose-fitting garment which touches us in a few places and there lightly. Yeah. We're not saying anger, hatred, you know, we're not saying run away, we're not saying blame everything, but we are saying, man, wear it lightly, don't let it touch you in very many places, Mm -hmm. right? Like a, a benevolent detachment from it. The Desert Fathers, okay, viewed society, meaning the pagan society, limited by the horizons and prospects of life in this world, was regarded by them as a shipwreck from which every person had to swim for their life. These people believed that to let oneself drift along passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society was purely and simply a disaster. And gang, that was a world without technology. That was a world without any form of the combustion engine or transportation. That was a world that we would consider almost idyllic, right, to live in. But the world creeps in in all places and in all ways. So 
every era has its own version of the world. And, and Jesus says, take heart. I've overcome the world. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. We really hope that this has been helpful. If there's been a few things that have kind of really sort of pricked your heart, like write it down. Write it down before the world sweeps it away with the assault on your attention. Spend a little time with it. Think about what you're going to do to save your soul in the sense of salvation is a process. We are being saved and, and a lot by the choices that we're making. You've been listening to the Ransomed Heart podcast in the conclusion of a six-part series on the world this week, John and Sam Eldridge with Morgan Snyder.